Sometimes it's exciting to be a Christian. Sometimes you see God working in amazing ways. But sometimes, not so much. Let me ask you honestly, has anybody ever said anything to you that has shaken your faith to the core? Maybe just with one or two sentences. I'll be honest, it's happened to me. Let me tell you about the first time that I remember it ever occurring in my life. I was a freshman. I was in my first college philosophy class, Philosophy 101. And my uh, college philosophy teacher started going into existentialism. That was the unit he was beginning. And he said, let me just start talking about existentialism by asking the class a question. He said, raise your hands if you would call yourself a Christian. My hand went up along with a couple other hands in the class. And he said, all right, you Christians here. He said, are you aware of the fact that the person you purport to follow Jesus of Nazareth had a crisis of faith when he was hanging on the cross. That suddenly, because of the torture he was going through and the apparent absence of God, Jesus Christ realized with startling clarity that there was no purpose, no meaning, No grand design behind it all. That all of the ways that he thought God was going to intervene in his situation and in the life of the nation of Israel didn't happen. Well, I sat there kind of skeptically going, how does he know Jesus had a crisis of faith? And then he said, and I can prove it. Because why else, he asked, would Jesus have screamed to heaven? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, if Jesus had survived the cross, he would not have been a believer. Jesus would have been what we would call today an atheistic or agnostic existentialist. Somebody who realized there's no grand design The only meaning that life has is the meaning that you choose to bring to it because if God exists, he doesn't care. Now open your textbooks to page 260. Let's talk about existentialism. But I couldn't concentrate on existentialism because his challenge to my faith kept echoing in my brain. And in case you don't know what he was talking about, let me refresh your memory. Remember the agony of the crucifixion. The torture, the trials, the mocking that we've been talking about so far in this series, the the, the impending inevitable death, and then things really get bad. It's as if nature itself is mourning. Both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew say that darkness fell upon the land between about noon until about three, so everything's just looking very, very, very bleak. And then they both contain this troubling detail. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and the Greek word that's used there actually means to bellow. So he's just shrieking this out. And he says in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, what in the world was all that about? Did Jesus lose faith, as my professor suggested? And if not, then what could this possibly mean? Well, let's do some detective work today. Grab your message notes that look like this. They're in the middle of the bulletins that you got uh, when you came in today. We continue our series this morning, Crosswords, looking at the seven final sayings of Christ on the cross. Today, the word of agony, but you could also call it the case of the mysterious death cry. Because I got to tell you, what my professor said really rattled me, and I can tell it's rattled you. Because of all the final sayings of Christ on the cross, this is the one that I've been getting by far the most questions about. When people hear that I'm, heard that I was doing this series, emailed me, I hope you cover this, because this always bugged me. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, when our church rented out two theaters, one Green Valley, one up at Scotts Valley, to go see the new movie, The Son of God, packed out, sold out two theaters, and I had a great time. I, I went up to the showing at, at Scotts Valley. It was powerful, and afterwards, we all came out. And a woman from Twin Lakes was crying, and she pulled me aside. She said, Pastor, can I just talk to you for just a minute and ask you a question? I said, sure. And she pulled me aside, and she said, and I mean, she, she was crying. I could tell it was heartfelt. This was not an academic question to her. And she said, why did Jesus say that? Why did he say that God had abandoned him? Well, back when I was in college, I was so shaken by this that later that day, I decided to ask my stepdad, who was a pastor, to go for a drive. We were living up at Lake Tahoe, so I said, can we go for a ride around the lake? I, I really need to ask you about some stuff, some real questions I have. Lord knows what he thought I was going to ask him, right? But uh, I kept him in suspense, and we went for a drive. He was driving, and I was sitting in a shotgun. And, and it, honestly, at first, I just made small talk because I didn't dare tell him what was on my mind because I was afraid that he would say, because my stepdad was not an academic, to be honest. You know, he, he didn't have a lot of Bible training. He was a backwoods country preacher. And so I thought, what if he looks at me and says, in answer to my question, why did Jesus say this? You know, Renee, I don't know. I have no idea. I've always had that question too. And I was worried that he'd say that because that would really shake my faith. Or even worse, what if he said, we don't ask those kinds of questions, son. <laughs> so I said, finally, I blurted out, here's the question that I've, been, I've been wanting to ask you. What did Jesus mean when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And honestly, at first, <laughs> my stepdad looked like he was breathing a sigh of relief because who knows what he thought I was going to ask him, right? <clears throat> it's like, good, it's not about sex or drugs or something. But, uh, but then I thought, what's he going to say? And he looks at me and he says two words. Psalm 22. 
and then he just keeps driving. And I figured he was going to follow that up with something. And I said, what are you, are, are you telling me to look up Psalm? Are you telling me that Psalm 22 is the answer? What are you saying? And he wouldn't say anything. And I said, what are you telling me? And he just looks at me and says, Psalm 22. And then he just kind of smiles and keeps driving. And, and, and I said, aren't you going to tell me anything more? And he looked at me and he just kind of shook his head. And now I get it. Now looking back, I think that was genius. Because he wanted me to feel the thrill of discovery that those first disciples must have felt. And I want to take you on this journey because I, I went back home and I, and I looked it up after that drive. Psalm 22 was written by King David 1,000 years before Christ. Got that? That's very important detail. How many years before King David was Psalm 22 written? 1,000 years. And so I go home and I flip my Bible open. I looked at the first line of Psalm 22, and I want us to read it out loud together. Here's Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same exact words Jesus says on the cross. So now you thought, well, could Jesus have been referring to this psalm? Well, the writers of the Gospels thought so. It's interesting, both Matthew and Mark mentioned this line, and John, when he talks, for example, about how the soldiers divided Jesus' clothes, says, this happens that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. What scripture is he referring to? Well, this is also a direct quote from Psalm 22. And a couple of verses later in John 19, 28, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. What scripture would be fulfilled? Also a reference to, guess what? Psalm 22. So here you have Matthew and Mark and John and Jesus all saying, if you want to understand what happened at the cross, go back to Psalm 22, which the subtitle says is a Psalm of David. <clears throat> Because in doing so, if you go back and you really look at Psalm 22, and I hope you do today because it's amazing. I'm just going to hit the highlights. But if you really study Psalm 22, you solve not one but two ancient mysteries. You solve not only the mystery of Jesus' death cry, but you also solve the mystery of why David wrote this psalm. You see, for a thousand years before Christ... People have been scratching their heads, looking at Psalm 22, wondering, what in the world is David writing about? Because Psalm 22 describes somebody who's, who's pursued by evil men and then is publicly executed, has his hands and feet pierced. It says, they cast lots for my clothing. And here's the mystery. When did any of that happen in the life of David? The answer is, of course, it didn't. And the mystery deepens a little bit because any time David is pursued by his tormentors, and he was pursued a lot of times by evil men, he's always defiant, right? He's always looking for the way out. He's always looking for the leverage to fight his foe. But in Psalm 22, the person who is being pursued bows and is submissive to the execution like a lamb before her shearers is silent. When was David ever like that? Never. And there's no solution to this mystery. 
without the cross. See, one more detail you need to know. In the culture of Christ, the Psalms were known by almost everybody, but they weren't titled like they are in your Bible today. They weren't called Psalm 1, Psalm 2. They were known by the first line of the song. The first line of the song was the title of the psalm. You know that the psalms are song lyrics, right? That's what they are. We don't have the melodies anymore, but we have the lyrics, and these are all lyrics to songs. They're poetry. They're song lyrics. And they were known by the first line. For example, Psalm 23, maybe the most famous psalm of them all, would not have been known by Psalm 23. Its title was the first line of the psalm, which is what? The Lord is my shepherd. And so the Lord is my shepherd would have been the title of that song. And Psalm 22 would have been known by its first line, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That would have been the the title to the song. Now, let me shift gears just a little bit here and answer the question you might be thinking. Why would Jesus be quoting the first line to a thousand-year-old song lyric while he is dying on the cross? Well, here's the answer. Song lyrics are one of the most remarkably effective ways to teach people to remember anything. I mean, human memory of song lyrics is almost incredible. I was looking this up this week. Psychology Today had an article in 2012, which was all about why we remember song lyrics so well. It's a fascinating little article, and it says the single most effective way to get people to memorize something complicated perfectly, word for word, is through song lyrics. Now, you might be going, I don't know. I don't know if this would work on me. Uh, Just to prove this, I want to play a little game right now that I call Finish the Lyrics, all right? I'm going to start with the first line to a song, and if you can finish the lyric, whether you're watching over on video and venue or whether you're here in the auditorium live, I want you to just shout it out. And I'm going to start with a Broadway musical because my son, David Schlepfer, who's 15, is uh, in a Broadway-style musical right now, The Sound of Music, which is playing this weekend and next over at the Crocker Theater at Cabrillo College with CYT Christian Youth Theater. Some tickets are still available at CYTSantaCruz.org. But The Sound of Music has been going around in our heads a little bit, right? And so these songs are all branded on our brains. Now, even though you probably have never tried to memorize these, and you haven't thought of these maybe in years, you still know them perfectly. For example, finish this lyric, how do you solve a problem like? Exactly. I am 16 going on. Do a deer a. You know them perfectly, right? How about the oldies charts? All Santa Cruz uh, residents should know this one. Let's go surfing now. Everybody's learning how. Come on a. Exactly, right? You've never tried to memorize this, but you know. Now, here's another example. This next song is a song that, to my knowledge, has never been recorded, ever. It's never been on the radio. It's never been on TV. It's never been published in a book. And yet, though, as far as I know, it's never been in any media, and you have never tried to memorize it. You know these lyrics perfectly by heart. Finish this lyric, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin. How do we know this? It's the Playground Network of America. 
And there are thousands of these up here. I can't remember my own cell number, but I know the lyrics to Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, right? And how often has a friend in conversation just kind of accidentally started off a lyric, right, to a song, and, and they didn't even know they were saying a song lyric, and then you jump in and you finish the lyric because it reminded you of the rest of the song, right? One time, um, we were sitting around at the dinner table with our kids a few years, several years ago now, when we had two young adolescents, and it was Lori and I, and David, who's currently in Sound of Music next door, some tickets still available at cytsantacruz.org. David was a toddler, and uh, so we're sitting at the table, and, and the older four of us were getting into kind of a heated discussion. And then it turns into an argument, and it's just getting really loud. And my wife, Lori, says, all right, stop! And there's silence. And then David says, in the name of love, before you break my heart. Well, I think that very phenomenon is what is happening in this passage. Jesus is doing finish the lyrics with the disciples. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have automatically thought of the rest of the lyrics of the song, Psalm 22. And they would have gotten goosebumps. Because I'm telling you, this is twilight zone time. Why? Remember, Psalm 22 was written how many years before Christ? 1,000 years. And yet it reads like a newspaper report by an observer who was there that day. I want you to look at the Twilight Zone parallels between Psalm 22 and what's happening to Jesus on the cross. It only starts with the first line. Back then, as I said, anybody would have automatically remembered the rest of the lyrics. And how do I know that? One historian I read said Psalms 22, 23, and 24 form what you might call a messianic trilogy, one that in the first century virtually every Israelite knew by heart. So Jesus says the first lyric, and suddenly they're remembering lyrics that describe what is currently happening before their very eyes. For example, verse 16 describes the scene with this detail. Dogs have surrounded me. Now stop there for just a second. Archaeologists have found only one preserved body of a victim of a crucifixion with nails in its wrists and so on. Even though we know that there were, we know from contemporary writers at the time that there were thousands of victims of crucifixion, why have they only found one complete body so far? Well, because at crucifixions, birds of prey and and carrion birds like vultures and feral dogs were there, and they ate the crucifixion victims' bodies when they were dead. And so usually there were no remains left after a crucifixion because their bodies were eaten. And we know that from history, and that's why they've only discovered one intact set of remnants of a victim of crucifixion. And that detail is described right here in Psalm 22. The disciples would have seen the feral dogs surrounding the cross. Keep going in verse 16. A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And a thousand years later, what happened? They crucified him by piercing his hands and feet. And here's the really amazing thing. When Psalm 22 was written, crucifixion had not been invented yet. 
And nothing like this ever happened to David in his life. And it gets even more specific. Verses 6 through 8. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. A thousand years later, what happens at the crucifixion of Christ? Matthew 27 says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Exact same words. One parallel after another. In Psalm 22, it says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Extreme thirst was part of crucifixion. And that's why Jesus said in John 19, I am thirsty. And it gets even more specific. Back in Psalm 22, verse 17, it says, now remember, written a thousand years before Christ, people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Matthew 27 says, when they had crucified him, They divided up his clothes by casting lots. I mean, it's eerie, isn't it? And then it even foretells the manner of his death. Psalm 22, verse 14 says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. And you know, Jesus died much too soon for a crucifixion. Most victims of crucifixion hung there for a couple of days before they died. But not Jesus. Remember the uh, temple guard said, we need to take down these crucifixion victims. We don't want them hanging up here during the Passover feast. And so the soldiers went up to kill them by thrusting spears in their side and breaking their legs. And when they went to thrust a spear in the side of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that a flow of blood and water came out. What's that all about? Modern doctors know that what happened to Jesus was this. His heart burst filling his chest cavity with blood and fluid which came out when he was speared. And that's an important but graphic detail. Why? Because you always have people who say, well, maybe he didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he kind of swooned or something, and they thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb, and the cool of the tomb resurrected him, right? Revived him. But he wasn't really dead. For this to happen, he was dead. Very important detail to be included in the Bible. But I, I want you to put yourself in the disciples' sandals for a minute here. They're suddenly remembering lyrics because of the finish the lyric phenomenon that goes on in the human brain. They're remembering lyrics that describe, as I said, like a newspaper account, what is happening before their very eyes. And they got this. How do I know? In the book of Acts, there's a fascinating little obscure detail. Peter, in his first public sermon ever, says, our forefather David saw and spoke of the cross. Now let me ask you this. When did David ever see and speak of the cross? As far as I know, there's only one option in the writings of David, and that's this, Psalm 22. Several commentators I read said they wonder if Jesus sang the whole psalm because what's the last phrase or one of the last phrases Jesus says on the cross? It is finished. And guess what the last line of Psalm 22 is? He has done it, which can be translated the exact same way. In fact, in the Septuagint, 
which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was widely read in Jesus' day, the Greek for he has done it, the last phrase of Psalm 22, is identical to the Greek that's used here when Jesus says it is finished. The same phrase. Now, I don't know, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. I don't know if you even believe in God uh, this morning. But wherever you're coming from, you've got to admit this is amazing. I mean, this is just downright freaky here. Jesus quoting thousand-year-old song lyrics that prophesy in detail what is happening to him in that moment. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, I can think of three obvious reasons. You can jot these down on page three of your notes. In quoting Psalm 22 on the cross, Jesus is saying to you and me and the disciples, first, I think it's clear he did this to say, this is no accident, right? This is no tragic accident. There's a, there's a long-planned purpose behind this. He's referring his disciples to undeniable proof that every detail that they're witnessing was part of God's plan. It's not an accident. In fact, did you know that in his life, Jesus Christ fulfilled 332 distinct prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures? Now, what are the mathematical possibilities of all these prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man? Well, according to one mathematician, here are the odds. One in 84 to the 97th power. That's a number that looks like this. This is an 84 with 97 zeros after it. Now, I don't know if you've been following the Final Four, right, and the whole March Madness thing, but you remember Warren Buffett had a $1 billion challenge. He said to anybody who can accurately predict the way the 64-team bracket in college basketball finals would work out, he would give them a billion dollars. And, of course, that didn't happen because the odds against anybody coming up with that exact bracket is 1 in 4.2 billion. Those are incredible odds, but they pale, they're peanuts, they're nothing in comparison to these odds. As one writer puts it, Jesus was laying one more plank on a sturdy bridge over which a doubter could walk. See, Jesus never says what I was afraid my stepdad would say. We don't ask those kinds of questions. Just believe with no evidence. I was... was, uh, texting with a friend of mine on Friday, and we were talking about how sometimes as as Christians, you think to yourself, do I believe this just because it's beautiful? You ever ask yourself that? Do I believe this just because it's beautiful? It's a beautiful story that God loved the whole world so much that he came down here himself to save us from sin and hell. Wow, that's a great story. It's beautiful. But is that why I believe it? Well, here Jesus is saying, here is evidence for this. It was planned. Here are the prophecies. Here's the proof. But I think Jesus also says this to demonstrate, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Now, that became a cliche to say for a while, right? I feel your pain. But Jesus really did feel your pain. You know, sometimes we get this idea that when Jesus was here, he was Superman, right? Bullets just bounced off of him. He was God. He was divine. Nothing really bothered him. But if you read the Gospels, you're dispelled of that myth right away. Lots of times Jesus showed he was not only 100% divine, he was 100% human. Times like in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he made it very obvious. He felt 
sorrow, he felt pain, he felt loneliness, he felt thirsty, he felt tired, he felt hungry, he felt angry. And here Jesus feels utterly forsaken. And this is so amazing. I mean, just think of some of the things it means. I mean, one of the things it means on the most basic level is that Jesus can relate when I feel sad. Because we all feel sad at times, right? Uh, I'll never forget when we took a trip to Happy Hollow one time. Anybody remember Happy Hollow uh, over in San Jose? We took uh, our then-toddler, David, who's currently in the CYT production of Sound of Music. Some tickets still available at cytsantacruz.org. But we took him to Happy Hollow, and we had a great time there. And when we drove back, uh, David's in the back of the car, and he says, I had a great time at Happy Hollow, but where is Sad Hollow? You know? (laughs) I don't want to go to Sad Hollow. He thought that was next, you know? The truth is, Sad Hollow is not hard to find. At times, Sad Hollow is in your home or in your heart. But when we're in Sad Hollow, we can remember that Jesus Christ was there too. He felt the exact same way. There is no place so low that God has not been lower still. Isn't that good to know? Grieving a loved one or losing a job or betrayed by friends or at your wit's end or in the depths of despair, Jesus has been there. God sympathizes. What this cry from the cross shows me, that God is not a God who watches from heaven and says to you, come on, buck up, get over it. He says, no, no, life hurts sometimes, I know And so he can envelop you with his arms, not out of pity, but out of sympathy. That's awesome. But it's even more head spinning than that. Because what was the reason Jesus was feeling such pain? It wasn't just the physical crucifixion. It wasn't just the emotional mocking. It was spiritual. Jesus was feeling an alienation from the Father. You know how... When you sin, when you do something that that you know you shouldn't do, that God has said not to do, and and you feel that your relationship with God is strained, it's broken, something, a dark cloud has come between you, and and, and you feel this agony of of the vacuum in this relationship between you and God, and you want it back so so badly, right? We we long for the presence of God. We thirst for it. We, We strive for it. And we feel it going away when we sin against God. Well, the reason Jesus cried this cry was that the Bible says he became sin for us. He took on all of our sin on the cross. And suddenly in that moment, the son was feeling something that he had never before felt for eternity past. He was feeling an alienation from the father. Now, did the father actually forsake him, abandon him? Of course not. How do we know that? Well, because the Father promises several times in the Bible, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So he's, he doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you, much less the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, right? But we feel alienation, and Jesus felt alienation. Suddenly he's plunged into the abyss of a sense of the absence of the Father, 
And he did that so that when you sense that, when you are sitting in the corner and, and you're throwing ashes on your head because you're ashamed that you've fallen again in sin and you feel like all God wants to do is turn his face away and forsake you because you're disgusting to him, you look around and there he is sitting right next to you in the ashes. And he says, I felt that too. Now, I felt it for you so that you could be freed from the shame. So come on, let's get up and let's walk into the presence of the Father. Jesus felt alienation from God so that all alienation between you and the Father can end. And that is awesome. But there's even more. There's a third reason that Jesus says this. The final thing he was communicating was wonders await. Wonders await. The best is yet to come. Because Psalm 22, remember, they would have thought of the whole rest of the lyric, and it doesn't stay bleak. The first half contains all these details of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. But halfway through, there's a turn. It flips. The last half is triumphant. It's all about the glory on the other side of the suffering. Check this out. Don't miss this. Verses like this. Oppressed people will eat until they're full. Those who look to the Lord will praise him. May you live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and return to the Lord. All the families from all the nations will worship you. Now, where else in the Bible is there a description exactly like this, where every tongue, tribe, and nation comes to a feast and returns to God and worships him. It's in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where at, in the new heaven and the new earth, people are rejoicing before God and the Lamb. You see, Jesus is saying to disciples who are watching him dying on a cross, I mean, the wheels are coming off, right? The world is collapsing. It's an utter disastrous catastrophe. He's saying, this is not the end of the song. Remember the lyrics? Don't stop on the first verse or the second verse. Go all the way to the end because it gets better. In fact, it gets really good because the last verse of those ancient lyrics, you guys all remember, that describes what the world's going to look like thanks to what I'm doing here right now. Jesus didn't just die for you. He was raised to life for you and promises a resurrection for the world, for the earth. For the planet. Look at this, Psalm 22, verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Now watch this. All who go down to the dust, that's a biblical metaphor for all who die, will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. That's kind of an odd detail, isn't it? This verse is a promise that resurrection is ahead. All who go down to the dust and cannot keep themselves alive will yet live to kneel before him. Wow. So, my college professor, he said that this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was proof that Jesus suddenly saw it all as totally without purpose, without design, without meaning, and he died in despair. But I think you see now that the truth is the exact opposite. In fact, he's reassuring the disciples 
there's a far greater design than they ever could have imagined, a far richer meaning, a far more intricate purpose. And he is reassuring you of the same thing because you are a part of the song. Did you know that? You're a part of this lyric, this, this now 3,000-year-old lyric. You are in this song. Because look at the last verse. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Hey, that's you. You're in the lyrics of the greatest song ever sung, a song sung by Jesus Christ on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus, remember last week we looked at his concern for Mary, and he takes care of Mary because he sees her grieving. Here, he sees his disciples grieving, and their minds exploding. This thing's all falling apart, and he's concerned for them. And so he whispers in his disciples' ears a song lyric that's going to echo in their heads for the rest of their lives. He's saying, don't stop on the first line of the first verse. Sing the song all the way to the end, the song I am still writing. And you'll see my death is no tragic accident. God's in control. I understand your pain. I felt alienation from the Father, and I suffered alienation so that you would no longer have to. And the best is yet to come. Wonders await. The future's bright. And let me just apply this to you. Because maybe you're distressed. Maybe you pray. Maybe you cry to God for relief. But all you've been hearing lately in reply is silence. And you've asked that question yourself. My God, have you forsaken me? The first thing I want you to get from this is that that experience is pretty universal. I mean, you open up the Bible and just about every major Bible character went through something like that. The most famous instance is here in Psalm 22, verse 1, and even Jesus went through that as well. But then beyond just it being a universal spiritual experience, I want you to see that the same things that apply to Jesus apply to you. God's going to bring purpose out of this pain in your life. God is right there with you, next to you, feeling your pain, feeling your distress, and God promises this distress will not last forever. It's going to end. And here on earth and in heaven, wonders await. The bottom line is this. God has a plan, and it includes you. That's the message here. Life is not without meaning. It's rich with promise, rich with purpose, especially when you realize that its meaning is centered on literally the crux of history, the cross of Jesus Christ. God's writing a song, and you're part of the lyric. Stay with it all the way through to the end. Let's put our trust in him right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And, and in this moment, Lord, we just want to tell you, if there's anybody in this room who's been feeling abandoned or in despair or confused, I, I want them to just tell you, Lord, because we know that you truly understand because you've been here. So go ahead and in, in silent prayer now, just tell God your frustration.
And now believe him when he says that he'll never forsake you. Believe him when he says, look at the whole song lyrics, not just the first line. Believe him when he says that even when things seem like a total disaster, he's got a plan. He's in control. Thank you, God, so much that you're with us in each and every situation and that you've gone ahead to the end of it all. We want to just put our trust in you today because you have it all figured out. And we want to put our trust in the crux, literally, of history. The cross and the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.